welcome to Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, a product of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Eric Dorfman and Dr. Dan Dombrowski. I'm Dr. Eric Dorfman, Director and CEO of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And I'm Dr. Dan Dombrowski, Chief Veterinarian at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Thanks for joining us. You bird watch, don't you? I do. I probably less than sort of other things or, or you know, I always kind of make a joke about herping or, or looking for reptiles and amphibians. Herping. So I when, when I go on a birding trip, usually I'm my eyes are on the ground and uh, you know, I'm running around uh, looking at things. That is, you, you're the most <laughs> annoying kind of person to right. to bird with. Although I would say that that somebody who studies fungus or or maybe plants would be, you know, something that you know you walk at snail's pace and. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I can forgive you. I'll still go birding so, with so, you. Yeah, and I, and I think you know, talking about birds. So there's like birding. We go out on trails into habitat and and sort of with binoculars and and bird that way. Um, but then there's bird feeders too, and it's always I, I love talking about feeding birds, and 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 that's what a lot of people you know they're oh, yeah. they're attracting birds to to them or to their backyards or they're making their spaces hospitable for birds. And, um, and I think that's a, that's an interesting topic. We, we have bird feeders, we feed birds, but even that's mm-hmm. kind of controversial sometimes, right? Like people, yes, there, I know. there are issues there. So we just got a bird feeder. Um, this would be my first bird feeder ever, but I right outside, you know, with teleworking all the yeah. time, it's just a nice, nice way to connect to nature right there. In theory, they should be coming. Not that they have, they use the bird bath all the time. We put the bird bath up the next day they yeah, were in it. Yeah. Like it was the, but the bird feeder, which is on the front of the house, they're just ignoring. I tried different sorts of feed. It's like, like a parent with a yeah. new baby, you know, what do you, I don't know what to do here. Right. So I've got one wren that's coming and that's it. And the wren is barely there. They'll, so, they'll, uh, they'll, like, they'll likely wrong? catch on once we get, starting to get into a little cooler weather and little cold, cold streaks and cold nights. And our, our sort of winter flock will start. I'm sure that they'll find it. We have here, you know, we, we live kind of in the suburbs. So we, we do have yards and sort of green spaces, but basically as many bird feeders as you're willing to put up and fill, they'll, they'll empty in, you know, a day or two. So. <laughs> wow. Fair enough. This one. It's one of these ones that looks like a kind of like a lantern and you fill in the glass yeah. part and it's there's there's a lot of food in there. I'm I'd love it if they came in. <laughs> but so it was interesting because we talked with Greg Lubart about why people have pets and and the idea of possessing nature. And of course, I was thinking about this just as I was setting up the bird feeder and thinking this is a way of possessing it on their own terms, you know, or possessing the birds on their own terms. I'm, I'm fooling them into or bribing them, (laughs) I suppose, into making themselves visible to me. And it really is on a level, sure. On a level for me anyway, it's about supporting them through winter when food is scarce and there's lots of habitat segmentation and, 
destruction around, but mostly it's just that I want to see them. Yeah. I want them there in front of my window, but what about you? What are you, what's your motivation for? For me with bird feeders and attracting, attracting wildlife, you know, to my space, to my yard, sort of on their terms, but where I can observe sort of easily and conveniently, I think that's okay. I mean, these are native species in, in most cases, all, all of them are, but we're, we're trying to support the, the native species in this, as you said, sort of broken habitat. So, so our yard is, you know, mm. this cutout space and there, there are tracks of land and tracks of habitat that corridors that they can use, but really, you know, I'm, I figure we're kind of filling in, making a little pit stop, a little fast food joint uh, along the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's a little give and take. I try to encourage native species. Uh, you know, we try to sort of, we, we do have a lot of feeders, but try to sort of set them up in a way that we are bringing in the, the species that we want to, or specific to, to who we're trying to feed. Uh, you do that by the choice of by, food? By the or types the- of food. Types of food, types of feeders, and, and placement. Um, this is uh, right. here's where my not being a probably birder shows through. We we also get a lot of squirrels. Um, I, I I actually feed the squirrels too. So. I you know I'm it's probably yeah, terrible. Yeah. You know, at least it's not going out in the air, right? I if the squirrels come in. You know, I rarely see a, a bird feeder that squirrels can't get into. Yeah. A mutual friend of ours electrifies their their bird wow, feeders. Yeah. But if the squirrels get food too, that's that's part yeah. of it to me. I'm I'm happy to throw a couple of walnuts down. We we seem so. to still maintain pretty good diversity uh, in the the species that that visit, and yeah, the squirrels get some food too. We actually. Um, purposefully feed them in some cases so again i, I don't oh, know if, i don't know if everybody would uh, be happy about that but well when i was a kid my cat fished uh, a baby squirrel out of its nest and brought it home and i raised it from a tiny little thing until it was a sub-adult and um, it was the best experience the kind of the best, if you want to call it a pet experience I've ever had, right? This was, the squirrel was totally bonded and there was no way to, I mean, it was way, way up a tree. There was no way to get the the squirrel baby back. So I had to do it. The personalities of these things are incredible. And so, yeah, I've got a real um, affection for squirrels. My wife and I, we've put up uh, a couple cameras and these are like motion sensor cameras. Oh, really? You know, the quality is amazing and they're like Bluetooth and you can connect to them with your iPhones. And it's so amazing to see all the activity, what's going on right under our noses and a little corner corner of our yard, you know, how much activity between squirrels and birds and frogs and snakes and turtles all in one camera, one, one small view. It's like we would have no idea that there was all that action and all that activity. Um, so, so that's kind of another, I guess, dimension is you can add these cameras now that are really good quality. And it it kind of gives you another perspective on uh, day and night. So they have night night vision on them, too. Mm. So they take pictures. And I don't have a species count, but it's uh, as far as the, the diversity of taxa and types of animals that visit this small corner. There's a little, we call it a pond, but it's a sort of a, a plant about a 30-gallon sort of aquatic plant pot 
with some plants in it. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's it's really a lot of fun and it's a great way to know what's around, you know, again, native species yeah. and even the bird feeders. I mean, that's a great way to kind of see what birds are visiting and, and what's going on uh, in your area and what species are around. Well, the other thing that it does is remind us how much positive impact you can make from your home. If you have a, a garden that is big enough and potentially diverse enough for wildlife to use, it actually has more of a positive effect than we know. And, and, and increasingly, this is an important resource for so, wildlife. So another angle I'm just going to throw out there, people don't always think about people, you know, birds are kind of an easy one, right? That's like everybody, birds are beautiful and they're, they're colorful and they have awesome sounds, songs, but they rely on insects and other invertebrates and, you know, arthropods. And so as people get sort of deeper into appreciating birds, they generally start to recognize that you kind of have to support a lot of the other stuff too, particularly the the invertebrates and the insects. And so you got to be careful about maybe some of the the spraying and the, you know, insecticides and stuff like that. And, and that could be, you know, a big reason if you can sort of prepare your space and be friendly to those invertebrates, it really, over time, your, your bird population and bird diversity really goes up. And it's, it's really, even if they're eating your seeds, most of those birds require, you know, a, a lot of, if not them as adults, they're young, uh, they require. Them. Right, exactly. And the other thing that in many cases, it's so easy to make plant choices when you're gardening for pollinators, for other insect attracting species of plants, also for species of plant for your garden that provide forage and shelter for birds. So, and, and this, the sort of complicated habitat structure that they need, the square feet of lawn that you have, which is also such a hassle to mow a lot of times can actually be, if, if altered can be such a rich environment for so many species. And, And I think we're, the more we learn things like, like mowing, if you can do that a lot less and kind of leave that, even that little patch a little less disturbed uh, or be strategic about sort of when you manage and how you manage it, it can make a huge difference for these species that we love to watch and feed in the yard. Just to throw one more dimension out there as a veterinarian, you know, I pay attention to wildlife diseases and, and bird diseases. And, and so that's another, that's another discussion around feeding birds and, and whether we're sort of promoting feeders are promoting disease by these gatherings of birds that might not gather in these densities otherwise, or by sort of providing these surfaces that lots of birds come to all the time and may sort of expose each other to things. So that's another angle that, you know, folks need to be conscious about keeping their their equipment clean or their feeders clean. Mm, Um, if If you see birds visiting that are unhealthy, if they've got lethargy or they've got swellings that look abnormal or, or just look off. Um, that's something to really keep an eye out for. And, and again, I, I think that's something we need to be careful about, but it, for me, it provides a way to kind of keep an eye on those things too, right? So if we have these disease issues or we have health issues in our wild birds, feeders, usually that's the first place they get reported where people see, see this activity at their feeders. 
What do you know about hummingbird feeders? Uh, are there things that you should or shouldn't think about with hummingbirds? So hummingbirds, the, the feeders for hummingbirds that we use are, are all some version of a, a sugar solution that attracts them. There's usually, you know, colorful flowers associated with the feeders. And those birds will come in and they'll they'll feed off that. But if you watch hummingbirds, they're they're actually they're eating other other stuff too. If you watch them, uh, a typical behavior, sometimes they'll look in your window or they seem like they're they're looking at you through the window. But if you watch them, they're actually picking up uh, insects and spiders, particularly out of oh. webs. And so so they're they're wow. feeding on some other things too. Um, but yeah, that's that's another bird that I think it's an interesting conversation and maybe both agree on the the pros of of bird feeding and bird watching and sort of the value to the birds mm. and to us but there there are there are arguments against it some some folks uh, yes. have some concerns about it but and and one of them of course is stopping one if you've been feeding them for a while then stopping abruptly you'll have an you'll have an unnatural density of birds which is dependent on your feeding them. And if you then take that food away, there will be potentially difficulty. That's kind of how nature works in a lot of these ways. So a lot of these foods they're eating kind of do that too. They're, they're seasonal or they pop up and sort of appear and then they're unavailable and like so many things within moderation and, and keeping things in mind, like keeping your, your feeders clean, uh, watching Mm. for, for health or, or unhealthy birds, I think that's uh, I think that really goes a long way. The other, the other thing people get concerned about, and and I have seen this, is some of our other bird species. So you may set up a feeder to to feed songbirds, but you may actually have a uh, a hawk feeder or <laughs> a sharpshin maybe sort of hanging out uh, because they're eating potentially some of the birds that are visiting your feeder and eating your seed. So. Right, which could be great for them, but if you don't <laughs> like to, uh, yeah. If you don't like to see that, I had this amazing, in fact, I, I posted it on Instagram, this Cooper's hawk in Cayman ate a baby turtle in the bird bath in the backyard. Oh. It was at a fair distance, so it wasn't that gruesome, but really amazing. I have no idea where it got the, the turtle from. We, we do have a creek in the yeah. backyard, so that could be it. So I, but I have to read you the bird seed statistic. According to a 2016 U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service report, 57.2 million Americans 16 and older feed wild birds around their homes each year. They spend a total of around $4 billion on bird food annually, providing 1 billion pounds of seeds, suet, and other goodies birds like. So that's quite a, that's quite a, a contribution right. that we make two birds provisioning them across the country. So it's, it's also, you know, when you consider the, the number of birds, you know, there's, there's some grim statistics about the standing stock of small birds around the world is plummeting because of all kinds of things like habitat destruction and, insecticide use, pesticide use. Yeah. And so it's nice to see a statistic where we're giving back. And obviously a lot of people really care about that. That's a lot of bird food. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I hope too, like a lot of things we talk about, it's good for people, 
good for us to be able to interact with wildlife. It gives opportunities to, to folks who may not have that opportunity or, or even know they're interested otherwise, and, and hopefully opens their eyes to, to other issues with habitat and conservation. It makes, makes folks a little more sensitive to you know, the world around them, the natural world around them. One of the turning points in my young career was being brought out into the wilderness by one of my teachers and shown birds and how to bird watch and how to use binoculars. I mean, that was just the, the right mentor at the right time. And, and I've been hooked ever since. I mean, and that's going back a long way. I, I have to admit for, for birds and birding for me, my, my sort of favorite approach to that. I, I love when I'm in a place where I can be still, you know, we have some areas where there are blinds a lot of times over waters or waterfowl or, or even, you know, a park bench for that matter. But I, I love to just sit still in a way that I can see the animals sort of doing what they do and, and sort of going on about their business. And whether that's a camera set up that we're sort of getting that view when we're not around or if we're bird watching and have binoculars, it's, it's just so amazing to see, you know, the world in action that's not really us and isn't isn't our doing. It's it's kind of going on, uh, you know, maybe in spite of us or, or uh, without paying any attention to what we're doing. So. And coming up right after this break, we have our interview with Deja Perkins. Love Nature, the Biophilia podcast, is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Each episode explores our connection with nature on a personal, physical, and scientific level that enables us to live better and more responsibly on the planet. This podcast was made possible by a donation from the Burt's Bees Foundation and Burt's Bees to the Friends of the Museum of Natural Sciences. Now, on to our interview. Deja Perkins is an urban ecologist and advocate for people exploring the nature in their neighborhoods. Her research interests primarily center on urban bird ecology. Through her master's project, she found that citizen science point count data sets can detect underlying socioeconomic variables, and she's interested in how human culture and bias impacts avian habitat and distribution in cities. She's interested in the intersection of environmental justice and conservation, looking deeper at how environmental and social justice issues impact wildlife and how people value the environment. Deja is a research assistant with the Triangle Bird Count. She's an urban ecologist and advocate for people exploring the nature in their neighborhoods. She's a graduate of North Carolina State University's Fishery and Wildlife Conservation Biology Master of Science program. During her time at NCSU, she was part of the Reconciliation Ecology Lab Public Science Cluster and a USGS Southeast Climate Adaptation Science Center Global Change Fellow. Her research interests primarily centers on urban bird ecology. Through her master's project, she found that citizen science point count data sets can detect underlying socioeconomic variables, and she's interested in how human culture and bias impacts avian habitat and distribution in cities. She was also co-organizer of Black Birders Week social media movement. She organized Birding While Black live stream Facebook discussion hosted by National Audubon. Now let's 
please welcome Teja Perkins. Yeah, so I am originally from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I grew up on the, I like to say the south side, but it's more so the east side of Chicago. I was about 15 minutes from the lakefront. Um, and I was a very sheltered child, so I didn't get a chance to go out and like explore. Um, our local park was a 10 minute walk from my house, but it wasn't a park where you know, nature was the the forefront. It was more so focused on sports. So there was a football field and tennis courts and a playground. And the only trees that were there were the street trees that were outlining um, the park. So I didn't really have experiences with nature and exploring the outdoors. I was only allowed to ride my bike to the third or fifth house on the block. So it's like, if mom can't see me, that's, you know, that's it. My experiences with nature more so came in, I guess, middle school late middle school, high school. I was very much so a sports child. So I was always kind of put into, um, I was in gymnastics for a very long time. And after that, I was like, I want to make friends. I'm tired of doing sports. I want to make friends. So (laughs) I thought that would be the way to make friends, but I didn't really make friends until I, I guess, started exploring some programs that were involving science. So I I guess I always start my story with the program at the Shedd Aquarium, but in all honesty, there were a few times that I was able to have these like early interactions with nature. So like I have a a memory of my stepdad taking me fishing with one of his friends. And I remember catching, I caught a catfish. It was probably about like a little less than a foot um, but I was so excited to get home. I'm like, mom is going to cook this catfish for dinner. And my mom, when we brought it home, she's like, what, are, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to do no, I just, in my little head, I had no idea that there was, you know, a way that you were supposed to cut it up. I just thought she had this knowledge. Yeah, so I have memories of that and memories of my grandma taking me I guess camping, but really it was, we went to uh, this place called Jellystone Park and it was a place where people with their RVs could go and camp and, you know, making s'mores and just sitting outside at night. <laughs> I think I went to a Jellystone Park once as a kid. I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. So, I mean, those were, and it was a great way for me to get a taste of what it was like to be outdoors. I mean, being, growing up, in the city, almost landlocked because there was really no way for me to get to a park, especially with having parents who weren't outdoorsy. Those few experiences are things that I really cherish in my mind. But it was, it really wasn't until I got into high school that I started learning about the outdoors. I mean, I like a lot of kids, I guess, who are into science, I was obsessed with the museum and obsessed with the zoo and the Shedd Aquarium. And I just know my favorite exhibit at the Field Museum was the evolution (laughs) exhibit. And so I just love learning about anything from, you know, what the first organism was to extinction to the dinosaurs. And I was obsessed. I mean, that was the only (laughs) exhibit really that I would go there for. 
Yeah, it was just this kind of dance I had between, you know, keeping my head in the book and visiting the zoo and the museums and just learning and absorbing everything that I could about animals. My relationship with the Shedd Aquarium is really where um, I first got involved into science. Mm. I participated in a few of their outdoorsy programs. And so um, the one that you know, was the highlight of my experience there was um, a marine biology program for high school students. And we learned about, you know, marine biology. We learned about a lot of the different conflicts, such as like ocean acidification. And we were learning about um, ecotourism. And we learned about biodiversity and, you know, how to ID reef fish. And we ended up getting the chance to go down to the Bahamas to spend a week on their research. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was the time <laughs> of my life. I got to ride down on the boat. So we flew down to Miami and we got on the boat and rode the boat all the way down to the Bahamas. And it was, it was just amazing getting to sit on the front of the boat and be able to watch dolphins and going down there to learn about sharks and the research that they're doing at the different labs down in Bimini. Just being able to go snorkeling. I mean, I'm obsessed with snorkeling to this day. And I I tell people all the time, I'm like, if you ever want to go snorkeling and want to do um, a snorkel tour, I could do that for you. I mean, I can even though I'm supposed to be team bird, I can identify <laughs> tons of reef fish. And so, yeah, my relationship with with science and animals really started out with team fish instead of uh, team bird, as a lot of people like to think. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how like an experience like that, you know, it, it could be a week or two weeks that, I mean, I, I, I'm the same way. Like I can remember that that one time or that, you know, that field trip. And, and I still remember it and how that shapes our lives, you know, like, like if we can, if we can reach out to our visitors, our young guests and, and just at the museum, we try to give them that experience. And it's amazing to watch them sort of get that and then just go where they're going to go with it and take it, take it to the sky. So that's great. I agree 100%. I mean, I tell people all the time that it's, it's always that that exposure, that one, that one experience that could be the life-changing experience for someone that alters the path they go down for either their career or their life. And so um, I think that's one of the reasons why I love reaching out to people and engaging people with science and nature is because I know what those experiences did for me. And I just want to see so many more people have those experiences and fall in love with the outdoors and with nature and pursue a career in science, honestly. (laughs) And of course, that's what this podcast is for, you know, love nature, the whole idea of biophilia to ignite that passion, that that we have and can have with nature. And, and I think that those experiences sometimes, you know, as, as an adult or a professional or as a veterinarian, you know, when I work with our students, for me, it's just a few minutes of my time sometimes that then becomes so impactful on, on, on those 
students or kids or, you know, whatever age they are, that if we can just take a minute to give them the attention at that time. It's amazing how that it's like planting a seed that you can watch grow and turn into a, a strong tree. So that's great. You talked a little bit about the adventures that you've had. And I know that a lot of your interest lies with urban ecology. Could you describe what you mean by urban ecology and talk to folks a little bit about that and, and what your work in that is? Of course. So I like to tell people that urban ecology is just studying the interactions between organisms within the built environment. So urban, suburban, within the city, and studying interactions not only between organisms like plants and animals, but also people, because we are a huge component of the built space. And I really, I really fell in love with urban ecology in high school, not high school, I'm sorry, undergrad, because while learning about wildlife biology, I was realizing that most of the courses about ecology and about wildlife were taught from a rural perspective. And we get taught to believe that cities are always bad for wildlife. It's always bad for the environment and that nothing good ever comes from cities. But being from a large city myself, I knew that that was not necessarily the case. I know that nature exists in cities. Nature is very important, not only for people, but for wildlife that actually utilize those spaces in cities. And so we have to study that. We have to know about those interactions, not only about the negative, but we have to think about positive interactions that occur and how um, nature benefits us as people and wildlife and how to make in my in my mind how to make cities more sustainable for the future human population is constantly increasing and most of those people will live in cities it's just a fact and so if we don't think about and plan for the future of cities and how that will look it might just be something negative and nothing but pollution but if we think about the way that we plan cities and we incorporate green spaces and green infrastructure and we incorporate parks for people and wildlife then cities can be a living breathing organism in itself that's just super beneficial for both the for the well-being of people and animals i think one of the sort of conclusions that i've come to you know we're a part of nature and i think it's easy for people to, to put nature in a box and think that like like you said it's a park it's in a box that's where nature is but really we're a part of nature our cities we, we we need it we need it for our happiness and our health and you know for the planet to survive we've got to find ways just like you said to incorporate that into our development and our buildings and and how we live i think and i think one of those reasons is because we're always i don't know if we're taught or if it's just the I guess the idea that nature is somewhere else. And so watching, you know, National Geographic or Animal Planet, we're always looking at people exploring nature in these faraway places or even 
in like Yellowstone or like the national parks that are out west. But what about somebody who lives in a city? Do we have nature there? You know, what what can I explore? What what organisms, what wildlife can I see close to home? And I think, you know, we kind of built this idea that nature is somewhere else and it's not a part of us that we don't need it, which, you know, is a negative thing. We need to have this, we need to build this idea that, like you said, we are a part of nature and that you know, nature is something that's close to home. So, you know, thinking about the Japanese concept of forest bathing, when you go there, there are places to do that, even in a city, right? You can get out into these temples and see see nature and just have it be so um, impactful, even in the middle of tons of people. That's, of course, where backyards come in, too, isn't it? It's like our haven, our green space that, that gives us a, a respite from the rest of the world, Makes me think a little bit about the concept of environmental justice too, and I and I wonder if you have thoughts on on that as a as a concept and and how that plays into a lot of the things we're talking about. So, what is environment? Just to start with, what is environmental justice? Environmental justice. We I guess we should really talk about environmental injustice because that's really what it is. Um, so we have communities, largely minority communities that are um, disproportionately affected by environmental pollutants and environmental hazards. And this is due to the way that our country was built. We know about Jim Crow, but everybody may not know about redlining, which was a housing policy that was put in place to reduce African-American home ownership. And so studies have shown that these policies have impacted the way that green space is today. And so areas that are redlined, um, which were mostly black and brown communities, have less tree cover, have less green space in them than neighborhoods that were green lined, which were majority white neighborhoods. And so it's not just about who was able to own a home, but also where the communities were placed. So minority communities are more likely to be placed in on land that is less valuable, so land that is more prone to flooding, land that is not as great for agriculture, where more our neighborhoods are more likely to be placed near environmental pollutants. So if we think about North Carolina, near pig farms, um, which are very smelly and could if there's a you know a hurricane and the there's flooding, then that could cause that could cause waste to invade into those right. communities. So their environmental justice is this concept about getting, I guess, equity um, when it comes to environmental amenities and just health. It's, it's a it's a concept that's really tied to health. I think we should also think about environmental injustice because that's what it is a lot of times because a lot of times those communities don't get justice for 
the wrongdoings that are done to them. How do you think that this affects those communities' experience of nature, like as a, as a worldview? Potentially you're an exception because you, you, had, you got to the park, you got excited by what you saw there, but many people could experience that same park and never see the birds, never, never make that leap. Do you, do you think it's a steeper climb to appreciate nature for people in redlined communities? I think that they don't get the opportunity to. I think people have different relationships with nature. So my relationship with nature is through animals because that's what I like. But a lot of times other people, their appreciation for nature comes with the understanding that um, increased green spaces means better air quality. Yep. You know, it means less flooding. And so um, people have different relationships with nature. Other people have connections with nature through food. So connections through agriculture and urban gardening. And so it really just depends on um, what, I guess, what their connection, how, how do we make nature important for different types of people? And what is it, um, how do we make nature important for different people and, and how do we make that connection that nature should be important to them? And I think that's one of the hard things for me being a bird lover is that I want people to get excited about birds. But a lot of times people are like, well, I don't care about birds. I care about having clean water. I care about having clean air to breathe. I care about my home not being flooded. I care about having access to healthy food. And those are all important things. And those are all things that are impacted by redlining and needing and having access to equitable green spaces in their communities. So sometimes the connection between nature, people in redline communities and going beyond just appreciating, appreciating the outdoors is a little bit difficult um, because there are all of these other things that are important, especially to people's well-being before birds and wildlife. <laughs> so, so, in your experience with, you know, you've spent a lot of time, we talked about citizen science projects and, and with, with birds just being a species as an example. Do you think that what you've seen, um, do you have ideas about how to, to sort of correct for the, the bias that, you know, and, and if you tell us a little bit about it, where a lot of these projects, these citizen science projects, they're based on who sort of agrees to do it and who applies and what citizens participate. And if, folks from some communities are and some communities are not it's it's really biased and, and sort of missing big chunks and particularly these urban areas so can i would say one what do you think about or can you tell us a little bit about it and then two do you have ideas of how to you know make that better or get rid of that bias you know i really do wish that i had the answer but in actuality i don't so i guess i'll tell this in the in the way of the story so my master's project, I worked with this citizen science project called the Triangle Bird Count. And so we had this goal of mapping bird diversity across the Triangle region of North Carolina. So Durham, Raleigh, Cary, Garner, Chapel Hill. And so 
me being me and wanting to connect people to nature, um, especially and work with my community and taking this phenomenal environmental justice class at NC State, I... I wanted to make sure that I was engaging my community. I wanted to make sure that I was getting other Black people involved in this project. That was not the case. So I probably had two or three African-American participants. And there are several reasons for that, right? Birding is not something that is, I guess, very prominent in the Black community. And it's hard. Birding is hard. Bird identification is hard. It takes a high skill level to be able to participate in a project like that. So already that's a barrier. And then for birding, you need to have special equipment. You need to have binoculars or a scope. That's another barrier because those things are extremely expensive. And then you have to to you have to know about birds you have to have an interest in birds and I found that there were people who were interested in learning about birds but in order for me to have that high data quality I needed volunteers who were um, more experienced and I just didn't have access to more experienced African-American black or Latino birders in the triangle region I just I didn't And so I think that's what we often see with a lot of citizen science projects is that we don't have a lot of diverse participants because we have these barriers to participation, either access to places to actually do citizen science projects. So if we are doing talking about a nature based project, do you have access to a park? Do you have transportation to get to said park? Do you have money for equipment, whatever equipment you may need? Do you have knowledge about the program or knowledge about science and what what all exists? Do you have other responsibilities that are preventing you from participating? You know, are you low income? So do you have to work two jobs, you have this lack of time because you have other responsibilities. You have to, who knows, work, feed your kids, worry about providing for bills, keep a roof over your head. When it comes to citizen science, it's more of an, that's more of an extracurricular. There are these barriers. I think that there are ways that we can get more people involved in science and citizen science projects or even birding. And I think a lot of that involves being intentional. I know a lot of people have good intentions, but they don't necessarily always come out the way their actions don't always come out the way that they intend. And so what I've been seeing is that we have a lot of these well-meaning organizations that want to do all of these initiatives, but don't necessarily know how to work with minority communities. So one way would be to hire a specialist. So either hire a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist, which I am not. (laughs) A lot of people ask me, what are your thoughts? What are your ideas? I am not a DEI specialist. My friend, she got her PhD in DEI. I got my master's in wildlife. If 
population <laughs> biology, you know, so it's, it's about finding the right people, finding people with connections, working with communities that are already a part of the space. There are a lot of organizations that are doing community-based research and community-based projects. And so it's about connecting with those people. It's about creating projects that people care about, that people have some connection to, and doing that in their community. So I think a lot of times if I'm, there's a citizen science project that just doesn't relate to me, then why, why am I participating? So, and I think one way that I'm at least attempting to try and get more people involved and kind of reduce some of those barriers for citizen science is that I host a weekly live stream show on Monday nights at 6 p.m. called Make It Count Mondays. And so really our intention is to expose people to the variety of citizen science projects, why they matter and, you know, how people can participate and really just give them a demonstration so that they can really you know, it feels a little less daunting to participate. We'll put the link of your show on yes. on our website. And in fact, we'll have to listen. I want to participate. I'm like ready to go. I have to admit to you, this is a little bit on the lighter side, but uh, I, I'm I'm less of a birder and more of like a herpes. We'll still talk to you, Dan. More of a reptile and amphibian. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, I know Eric. I know Eric is a birder. Um, it's hard for, and I'll just say, it's like birds. You have to really be satisfied with you kind of heard them, and you think you know what you heard, or you see them, and it, it's easier for me to get a little closer to reptiles and amphibians. But um, but I think birding, and it, it seems like a great way to teach observation skills and patience and it's a good way to really get people and it's it's pretty less impactful and sort of easier access i think so i I love it as a model i mean do you agree do you think birding is kind of a a good gateway to to sort of loving nature and being a naturalist i do i mean from that's how i got into birding is just by observing i mean i did not notice i mean that's the thing you have to be able to notice birds I like to connect people with the larger birds, so vultures and hawks and great blue herons. So all these larger birds that you can see in urban areas. But a lot of birders get excited about these little tiny three to four four (laughs) birds with magnificent coloring, bright blues and, and oranges that you have to really have a trained eye to be able to see. And so one thing that I like about birding and why I think birds can be a gateway drug for nature (laughs) is because my birds are everywhere. And so I love the fact that I can be here in North Carolina and see birds and then go home to Chicago and see some of the same species Two, the whole, I guess the, the way that I really started to appreciate birds was through a bird feeder. Yes. Right. Minnesota Valley, they have this observation window and this bird feeder, and it allowed me to be able to observe the birds, look at their behavior, look at their coloring and start learning ID without needing binoculars or without needing to be super close to them. And so I think that that is bird feeders. You know, or even a makeshift bird feeder doesn't have to be anything fancy. Or even if you just buy seed and place it on a plate, you know, like either on your railing, anything. Yeah, yeah. So definitely think they're they're a gateway 
to nature. That's why I love them so much. But it is hard. It is hard to find them and to have the patience. It's easy, quite easy to give up and get frustrated um, when it comes to birds because they sometimes they just don't want to cooperate. You know, they really rely on the urban environments or the settings or it's, it's easy to see the connections birds have, you know, they've got to get from point A to point B. And so kind of no matter where you are in whatever city, there usually are opportunities to see birds and, you know, get excited about birds. So I think that's pretty cool. So outside of birds, you said you got started with aquatics and fish. Like what's your favorite animal outside of birds? Let's, let's say the birds. Okay. Let's see. I was obsessed with horses, as a lot of little girls are, (laughs) and so it it moved from horses to dolphins and fish. (laughs) So I love, let's see, I think, I think the parrotfish is like one of my favorites. Fantastic! I love that you can hear them underwater, chipping away at coral, and I think they're just beautiful, brightly beautiful colored. So, yeah. Fish, <laughs> love fish. You think you'd uh, you think you'd ever move to uh, marine biology instead of ornithology? Team bird is probably going to come after <laughs> me on. Twitter. You're on the spot now. <laughs> I really do love fish. I love learning about marine fish, and um, I think. I mean, I tried to go snorkeling every year, and I love just going out to see what I can find. It, it is a little disheartening sometimes going and seeing the reef not being what you think it should no, be, not true. being super colorful. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, it's always a shock to me because you expect it to be, you know, the Great Barrier Reef that you mm-hmm. see on TV. And it's not, it's not that. But um, I would, if I wasn't studying birds, I would probably, I would probably be studying uh, mangrove ecosystems because they're great sanctuaries for juvenile mm-hmm. fish and they are also great for protecting people from hurricanes and flooding. And so still kind of that in, uh, intersection between nature and how it impacts people and how it can benefit us. Yeah, that would, <laughs> I think that would be. Yeah. And in fact, that study. that's why I studied cormorants for my PhD because I love fish and I love birds. So this was, uh, and they're easy to identify. <laughs> you don't know little gray warbler. Yeah, well, their their bones aren't easy to identify. That is, that's what I studied with the right. cormorants. I looked the at their um, yeah. <laughs> their digest stomach content analysis. So I had to go through and identify yes, otoliths. And <laughs> I I looked at otoliths from my masters on porpoises' stomach contents. It's amazing how something like an otolith, which for people who don't know, is the ear bone of a fish, and there they are specific to species tiny little bone. You can take such a, a deep dive on this just one topic and it gives you so much information. It's, it's wonderful. So I can see how you would, would get excited by that. So thinking about, you know, we've talked a lot about getting people excited, young people excited about, about nature and giving them that introduction. If you were going to give advice to young people wondering how to, and, and I will say that our, a lot of our audience is on the younger side here, a career doing the kinds of things you do and answering some of those questions. What, what would be your advice to them? So I guess I have a couple of different tidbits. So one, get good grades Mm. in school 
And this probably isn't uh, what you were thinking, but for me, getting good grades, it opened a lot of doors for me. It allowed for me to apply to different scholarships for programs to be able to go out and experience nature, just to be able to participate and get a lot of those experiences. Um, So I think sometimes we underestimate how important that is because I guess at a certain level, grades don't matter, but they are a way of opening doors for you. Two, I would say, I would say go outside and and pick a spot. It doesn't matter if it's in your front yard, your backyard, or at your local park. Go outside, sit down for about 10 to 15 minutes and just observe. Just see what you can see. You know, open your ears and just kind of sit there and watch. Once you're still for about the first five minutes, you never know what you might see. I mean, you might have birds coming and flying and coming and sitting close to you because you're not moving. Take note of the different colors that you see. Take note of any insects that you see. Take pictures to help you identify these things later. And so once you are still and you're not allowing the different distractions of life, you're quieting your mind, you are really opening yourself up to nature and just being able to see the different organisms that are around us. And I think that's one of the things we're always so busy and we're always, you know, constantly either our heads in our phones, we're texting or we're listening to music or, you know, moving around, hustling and bustling. But if we just take a a few minutes to sit and to breathe and to listen and watch, we never know what you may see. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's, that's great advice. What's what's next or what's what's on the horizon for you at this point? I, you know, I want to know what's next, too. I think <laughs> for the first time in my life, I don't see a clear path for myself because I am interested in so many different things. Right now, I'm currently the community engagement coordinator for Crowd the Tap a citizen science project out of NC State and where we are hoping to get people to look at their lead, their pipes to see if they have lead pipes in their homes. But um, for me and my personal trajectory, I think I might be going back to school to get my PhD because I don't think that I learned everything that I wanted to learn. I still have so many questions I am an urban ecologist, but I only I feel like I only got the tip of the iceberg. There are so many more questions that I have, and I would love to learn more about how landscape design Mm. and how we plant cities impacts wildlife and people. So I would love to think more about the future, how to make cities more sustainable and how to plan for greener cities question I, I wanted to ask you just being a biologist was exactly that do you think that city planning and like urban management they should have biologists involved with that do you think that's a good idea they really should I was so surprised um, <laughs> I was really surprised that they don't um, I spoke to a um, landscape architect and um, the one who did the design for the when they redid Hillsborough Street And I was really surprised when she said they didn't have a forester or someone who was thinking about the types of trees that they were planting. And it blew my mind because 
your the trees that you plant and the plants that you plant can have multiple benefits, especially if we're planting wildlife used for food um, or cover. It's not just about the aesthetic value for people. I mean, we can be more intentional about our designs and about how we build our cities. And that is, I guess, the theme of what I've been saying all episode. Intentional. intention. Your intentions matter. So be intentional. But I think it's, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking earlier when we were talking about people who have access to yards and it being, a, you know, a haven for them or getaway. I don't think all yards are like that. And I think we have to rethink and restructure our, our, our ideal yard and think about using yards to create privacy, using trees to create privacy and thinking about what types of plants that we plant in the trees in order to make sure that it can support birds because residential landscapes are such a huge component of the urban landscape. We just restructure our yards from this huge grassy (laughs) monocle. Well, you know, the other thing is about landscape design and choice of bird, I mean, tree species, those decisions will last 50 or 100 years, right? It's not just, uh, you know, whether you throw seed out or you you don't, it's those are there and they they define the character and the, in some cases, the biodiversity of an area. They do. And they can impact it in small ways. I mean, you don't have to have this huge backyard. I mean, I think about... My mom in quarantine, I guess for one last story, Uh, (laughs) back in Chicago, we have this really, we have a pretty small backyard. It's mostly concrete with a few like little patch of grass and space for planting. Um, Like I said earlier, my mom is not an outdoorsy person, but with quarantine and just being stuck inside the house all day, she saw the backyard as an oasis. So what did she do? Um, She started planting, you know, first started with flowers and then realizing going to the grocery store was not something that she really wanted to do that often. She switched to, I want to provide more of my own food. So then she's planting vegetables and um, lettuce and all types of stuff in her backyard. And then it turns into her noticing hummingbirds oh. and clear hummingbird moths and That's great. grasshoppers and bees and her sending me pictures and saying, hey, what is this? I found this in my backyard. Would you look at this? And just, you know, it's part fear, part excitement about I never knew I could have this whole world of things in my backyard. You know, these little decisions that she was oh, making, wonderful. you know, the the landscape around her. And I, I really do think she started to have more of an appreciation for nature because my mom is definitely a scared of everything <laughs> outside. Of person. Um, but, you know, I saw her starting to appreciate the birds and the bees and everything else in her backyard. And, you know, that extending to her wanting to go out and take walks um, around the neighborhood or at the park. And last time I went home, she actually went birding with me. And so, you know, it's these little itty bitty steps. So it doesn't matter what the size of your yard is. You know, if you just take one step, it really, that one step kind of leads into a whole appreciation for nature and the outdoors. I Mm. think. I I agree that, very well said. I agree completely. I know, obviously, reading your CV, you you were involved in organizing Black Birders Week. I, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that, why you did it, and 
what it is now and what you see the future of it? We started Black Birders Week because of the incident that happened to Christian Cooper in New York. His life was threatened by a white woman because she decided that she wanted to call the police on him and say that he was threatening her life all because he asked her to put her dog on a leash in an area where dogs are not allowed to be off leash in Central Park. And after that incident happened, one of my digital friends and a giftie, she said, hey, we have a ton of birders in in this group that we have. This group me we have is called Black AF and STEM. And she said, why don't we use the momentum from this event to highlight the fact that there are Black birders that exist. You all have a ton of knowledge about the outdoors and it's just really just a highlight who you know that that we exist and someone said how about we do a black birders week not just a day let's do a week mm-hmm. and so then we were like yeah okay so we decided to put together this week of events that you know highlighted black um, birders outdoor enthusiasts and naturalists we engaged the community and asked people to be more observant about the outdoors by trying to post a bird. We had one day where we had people ask us all their bird related questions and specifically people who identified as a black birder were allowed to answer. We hosted a live stream event where we talked about the experiences of birding while black. So just to highlight what we go through as black birders and how sometimes we don't really feel included in the birding community and to really move the conversation forward and think about how to make steps to changing that. And we also highlighted um, Black women who bird as well as LGBTQ plus birders. And so it really turned into from this idea of let's just show that Black birders exist to something that involved education and moving the conversation forward and thinking about solutions and not just talking about the problem, which I think is one of the great things about um, Black Birders Week. Is it going to happen annually? We certainly hope so. We are starting to plan um, Black Birders Week 2021. We would love to see this um, evolve into an in-person event, depending on um, what happens with COVID. Um, But we are also... We've also been organizing over the last few months to think about more ways that we can um, provide for our community. So we've done a few different collaborations and the current collaboration we have is with this t-shirt company called Animalia. Um, So it highlights um, black birds and black birders um, since the one thing they have in common is that people people don't appreciate them. Um, They're all unique and they're actually really dazzling once you get up close and look at them. Blackbirds have uh, have iridescent colors and they're beautiful. They're beautiful, they are. So the money... The money from that collaboration is going to be put towards creating adventure packs. And so we're going to be creating these backpacks that have everything the beginner outdoor enthusiast needs to start observing nature. So to take you from, you know, a hiker or a person who just goes to the park to someone that's actually observing nature and learning about the natural world. So we'll have a few guides in there. We might have a pair of binoculars, a water bottle. Thank you for making it easy. This is a very fun. Well, um, I'm looking forward to going birding with you. Oh, yeah, for future. sure. All right. Well, we'll get off now and definitely be in touch. Okay. Thanks. Bye, Deja.
Thank you for listening to Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. You can listen or subscribe at anchor.fm slash the Biophilia Podcast, or you can come to our website, naturalsciences.org. You can also visit the museum in beautiful downtown Raleigh. Details on our website.